Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. I don't know exactly how this is going to go. I was explaining to the congregation and most already knew that I just um, had a couple flat tires on the highway last night coming back from a conference and I uh, only got a couple hours sleep and had to throw this together this morning over a period of a couple hours. But the voice of Christ through his word is what I'm wanting to come out here, not what I say or what I have a lack to say. The truth of God's word is in our text and we'll be looking at a couple other parallel passages as we go. I'm not going to give an introduction. We're just going to start reading some verses here in Titus chapter 1 and I'll comment briefly as we go. The title of the message is Assure an Unchangeable Hope in Christ. Assure an Unchangeable Hope in Christ. The word hope is uh, listed in our text in verse 2. We're going to look at some other verses and other different books of the Bible that have the word hope and just briefly talk about that. Titus 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, in the acknowledging of the truth, which is according to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began, but revealed his word in due time in a proclamation, that's speaking of the gospel, with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. We looked at verse 2 in our several times before, but in a, most recently in our um, election series, our chosen in Christ series, when we talked about the covenant, the eternal everlasting covenant of grace, referring to how that before time, the Trinity covenanted together concerning the scheme of salvation. And here, verse 2 talks about that hope, the hope of eternal life. Of course, selfishly, I think, and what people are concerned with mainly it's once appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment so there is there is a hope of, of life after the judgment there is a the elect have this hope of eternal life spending it with their savior worshiping him and the non-elect they don't have a hope and we'll make some contrast maybe as we go along here but <clears throat> this word hope means a confident expectation it is not the idea of cross my fingers, you know, I, I'm, I'm doubtful that it might happen. I, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. And you're anxious about it. Hope here is talking about something sure and certain and unchangeable. And this is what we expect because God talks about it that way. He has promised, as it says here in the text, the God who cannot lie. So it identifies God as compared to maybe idols that maybe we have had in our minds in the past. And we know, of course, a false God and a false gospel and a false Christ powered by another spirit. It has lies in it. That's why we call it false. So here it talks about a hope, a confident expectation of eternal life concerning what this God, the only true God who cannot lie, he's impeccable. There are some things that God cannot do. This is one. He is not a liar. He is eternal, unchangeable, and he is the God of truth. 
And the language kind of piles on here. It says, it's interesting to me the way this is laid out. It says, he cannot lie. And then after that, it talks about a promise. So it's, it's not just common language. Really, no language of God would be common. But this kind of piles on emphasis on the fact that he went a little bit further and made a promise. Uh, we'll look at another text that talks about an oath. Now, these are things that are like covenant language. And when did this happen? Before the world began. When did God love his people? Before the world began. When did God write those people's names in the Lamb's Book of Life? Before the world began. That's when he elected them. So, the promise was made before time. And, and as I've said before, this gets it out of our hands. This happened before we were around. God did not counsel with man. God did not say, I got a scheme, what do you think about this? And, and tied to that, God did not look down through the future and see who would react to this scheme. Right? And he didn't base it on that. It was not conditioned on what God would see that man would do. And God would look at that and learn from that and say, okay, now I'm going to base my choice on how he reacted to this promise that I just, you know, the false view of God, God crossing his fingers, hoping in that way that man would come to poor old God who's just up there wringing his hands trying to get a crowd, you know, kind of like, kind of like our church, you know. <laughs> But God is infallible. He, he is uh, immutable. He cannot lie. He caused this to happen. He didn't wait around to see what would happen. He is the cause of all this in his sovereignty and in his wisdom and his knowledge. And you get to talk about all his other attributes. So this is, this is the God whom we have to do with right here, this one that can't lie. I don't, I don't have a problem with, and I don't think God does, have a problem with things that he can't do against his nature. God cannot be unholy. I don't think he's saying, ah, I wish I could, you know. It's ridiculous. He can't. Some people say, well, it's not that he can, it's he won't. No, he can't. That's why he won't. Don't get that flipped around. It's important not to get that flipped around. If you don't understand that, think about it. We'll maybe hit on that. In the coming series of the election of Christ, when we talk about some of the I would guess you would consider them deep. Maybe it's just because they're not talked about much. Some of those issues of timing, when we get into, we're going to destroy the idea of the well-men offer, and we're going to look at the Lapsarian views. And this is, I think, when we when we start to look at his, his immutability and the fact that, that God doesn't react, I guess is what we're getting to. Verse 3, we're going to talk about some more of the hope there a little bit uh, on down through here. So even though this was done before the world began, it didn't just stay there. It unfolded. It was eventually made manifest, made known. It had an end and it had a middle. But we, in verse 2, talked about the beginning. So the fatalist would say, okay, that's it. He promised eternal life before the world began. Let's shut her down. Don't need to preach. Don't need to pray. Just go about your life. Forget about God. He made the promise. 
you know, make claim to the promise and roll on. That's fatalism. In some circles, that's called hyper-Calvinism. Uh, we know with just glazing over the scriptures, the means that God has put in place and the commands and in reference to us taking hold of the means and making use of the means for the rest of our lives. Notice this, he says, but he has revealed his word in due time. So this is making this revelation or a proclamation made known, made manifest. And then Paul talks about his apostolic authority. This is, what, this is why he was separated from his mother's womb to do this job. He was appointed apostle to the Gentiles. We know he wrote uh, at least 13 books of the Bible. And uh, he's saying here, this is, this is what I'm all about. This is my, my task to proclaim this gospel that's connected back all the way to the promises before the foundation of the world. I want to read uh, some verses that uh, and you can follow along if you want. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 12. Some verses that have the word hope in it. I mean, there were several, but I, I, I trimmed them down to a few that would be pertinent to what we're dealing with. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 12. Then since we have such hope, and you could tie it to the same thing we were talking about up here. Uh, the context is talking about the covenants, the comparison of the Old and the New Covenant. And it says, since we have such hope or this type of hope that we're talking about, Paul says, we use great plainness of speech. Now, I think this idea of using plainness of speech is very, very underestimated. Paul says, I came not to you in words of wisdom. Right? He, he talked about the, the vain philosophy of the Greeks and um, uh, certain signs that were required and these different things. So Paul's methods, and Paul was you know, probably one of the most highly educated people on earth in his day. His methods were not to be humanistic in his dealings with people talk about his education uh, most of the time when he did I mean Philippians 3 he talked about it and he flushed it and you know, he said Dude, uh, I counted his loss he talked a lot about his history to identify with some that he was uh, entangling with to tear apart their false view so he would talk about himself in that way to show he was associated with some of the things they were associated with but he did not talk over people's heads Think of all the different texts that talk about plainness of speech. What is it? 1 Corinthians 14, where it deals with the tongues, and it talks about sounding a certain sound. Uh, he didn't want to be a babbler. He wanted to be understood. and he, So he emphasized plainness of speech in a lot of places. Plainness of speech is directly connected to truth versus mystery. You could mystify something up by not being plain. I don't understand what God has done with me to make me how that I am and how I preach. But over the years, I've recognized enough of the way that I talk with people and get response back from people and compare methods of communication that I may not be a genius, but I strive to have plainness of speech. I want to be understood. And it doesn't take a PhD to speak plainly. 
Sometimes speaking plainly is speaking simply. And when you speak simply, it doesn't mean it's shallow. This is something we have to remember as we deal with people. You're going to deal with a bunch of different people. So you, when you start dealing with people that are very, very smart, don't think you have to ramp it up and use their highfalutin language. You don't have to. You speak the truth plainly and simply, and that still can have some depth to it. So this should be the goal. I've said it many times. I would hate for somebody to leave hearing me preach in this room and walk out and scratch their head and say, what did he say? You know, by the time you leave, you're either going to agree or you're going to be offended. That's just the way it is. Plainness of speech. So I think it's important. He ties it directly. Since we have this hope, we use, we utilize. This is a tool of communicating the gospel. Plainness of speech. Don't deviate from this rule right here. It's important not to deviate from it. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. You know, when I say that, I beg people, and you all know me here, so you know what I think. But people that are listening, I, I, I hope that they don't think I'm bragging because of my plainness of speech. That is the most popular response I've gotten from people that I don't even know. They say, you're very clear. You speak plainly. I can understand what you're saying. And, you know, the first time I heard that, I thought, whoop-de-doo. Years ago, I heard that. But that's probably the best compliment that I could get. Tied to, you're not going to compromise either. And when you speak plainly, you don't compromise. Those two things are probably like the best thing that I could hear from people. And it has nothing to do with smarts. It just has to do with, that's the way I want to hear from people, you know. I want to hear clearness of speech, and yet not even in preaching. I'm talking about when I go to work, somebody tells me they want me to do something. I want to know exactly what they're saying, and if I don't know what they're saying, I'm saying, "Did you hold on? Let me clarify. Did you mean?" And I'll ask them questions. I'm telling you, you don't understand how important this tool is, and you need to utilize it. We looked at this text. Um, a couple weeks ago at the conference, uh, that was, my message was on this section, and it has the word hope in it. Second Thessalonians 2.13, uh, we'll get down to it, and it um, harmonizes with our text in Titus. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, Paul writing to the saints or believers at the church of Thessalonica. He calls them brothers. Beloved of the Lord, all brothers, all, all brothers are beloved of the Lord, and all beloved of the Lord are brothers or sisters, you know, who we're talking about, believers, in other words. Because God has, from the beginning, and I want to take you in this language back to Titus 2, about the promise that God made before the world began. Same time. Same things talked about. Chose you from the beginning to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. We see the Spirit gives life so that the truth can be believed. The Spirit testifies of Christ. And here we see the truth. That's the means, right? That's what Paul was talking about was made manifest. 
even though it was predetermined before time, it was made manifest in time. And here we see the same thing, same type language, the progression of the plan as it flows out and is made manifest to people, to believers, to which he called you by our gospel. It's just the reiteration of the truth there in the last verse that we read there. He called you by our gospel. This is the effectual call. This is not just the general call. You know, I, I make it, and we're going to look at this in the uh, when we get to the evangelism section and chosen in Christ series. We're going to spend a lot of time there. The, the general cause, I preach the gospel, that's the general call. It goes out indiscriminately to everybody. And then the voice of Christ comes through that to the elect and the effectual call by the power of the Spirit, the means of the gospel, is used to convert the elect. And that's what he's talking about here. This is the call. What's it say? Romans 8. It talks about there's five things. In there is a calling, and that's the effectual call. And uh, this is the one that, that cannot be stopped. It's irresistible. To the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, because this is in place for the elect, and this is how it takes place, and this is the progression of it from the beginning to coming to the present, to you laying hold of the truth by the power of the Spirit through the preached word. Therefore, my brothers, Stand fast and hold the teachings which you've been taught, whether by word or by our letter. Now, throughout this message, there are some exhortations of, of just that. You've been brought to this. You see it. You believe it. Be on guard. Take hold of it. Don't lose this. Protect it because there's some, some people trying to take it away. Now, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, who has loved us and has given us an everlasting consolation, notice this, and good hope through grace. Again, um, the only thing I can think of is the, the phrase pile on, the, the redundancy and the, the, the piling on of the connecting terms that are in the whole economy of grace. He just didn't stop at hope. He said, through grace. He talks about the ones involved, the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. The ones involved in the covenant, the God that cannot lie, has sovereignly provided this for his people. So stand fast in it and hold these teachings. He prays that this... Uh, would comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So God's people, as they grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, are established. They're built up. They see that they are assured by the foundation by which they're standing on that rock. And they are constantly counting on the hope of eternal life coming from the heart of God that spoke it and wrote it in his word, promised it. And this is, um, this is presuppositional apologetics. Uh, we presuppose that what God has said is true. So we don't seek after a sign. We just go back to what God said, and that should be good enough. Faith does that. Faith lays hold of that. 
Faith lays hold of the plainness of speech that we over and over and over see Christ and his apostles and the prophets talk about concerning our hope of eternal life in Christ. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. The word hope is used three times in this section. We sang a song this morning that had hope in it. And uh, we probably could have uh, sang a second one. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's all we're saying here today anyway. Hebrews 6 and verse 11. <clears throat> and we desire that each one of you show the same eagerness to the full assurance of hope to the end, the confident expectation to the end. You know, if we read, like in Hebrews, for example, if we read that he that begun a good work in you, he shall perform it and continue to do it until the day of Christ. Do we have an expectation that that's going to happen? You know, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. Okay, so we've come to him by faith. Do we have an expectation that, a confident expectation that in that last day he will, he will not cast us out anywhere in between and he will raise us up in the last day? God made a promise. Whenever we have unbelief or doubts, whatever, we're just, we're just doubting that promise, right? And if we have doubts, what do we do? I mean, do we like take our eyes off God's word and we start to, uh, if we could just, if I could just have a sign, <laughs> you've missed your sign. It's right here. It's in the scripture. You don't need a sign. There's only one sign given. It's a sign of Jonah in the heart of the earth, three days and three nights. It's a picture of Christ. We have the hope of the resurrection. We just sang about it this morning. He's raised. He's ascended. He is exalted. Quit looking to other things. Let's not be... That's, that's going in the mystical direction. That doesn't harmonize with plainness of speech. That you be not slothful, verse 12, but imitators of those who through faith and patience... Inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Here's some more of that language. The God that cannot lie promised. Here's swearing. That's a big deal. It seems to be like... Um, <laughs> Uh, like a hyper idea it's like over the top it's 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 more than usual right it's over and above which god has a tendency to do <laughs> uh, when he talks about himself and talks about his people things he's doing for his people he has promised and he has sworn by himself saying verse 14 surely i will bless you and in multiplying i will multiply you and so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Because men truly swear by the greater, an oath for confirmation is to the end, an end of all strife. In this way, desiring to declare more fully to the heirs of what? Promise. Can we connect that up with Titus 1, 2? The promise of eternal life concerning the God that cannot lie said, 
the promise of the immutability of his counsel. What did, uh, what did Isaiah say about his counsel? 46, I think it's 9 through 11, and many other places. My counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. God interposed by an oath. So he had this immutable counsel, and he interposed this counsel by means of an oath. He put it in place. So that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. Think about the harmony between here and Titus 1-2. The God that cannot lie and the fact that it says here that it's impossible for God to lie. Now these things that um, we see that God cannot do should bolster our assurance. And we know that, again, because he cannot, he will not. That should flow to us, directly to us, to our minds. We might have strong consolation, kind of sounds like that confident expectation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Who is our refuge? Christ. Our refuge is the one seated in the heavenlies, exalted, who's praying for us. He's our advocate. He's our surety. He's our representative, our substitute, our propitiation. He's our shepherd. He's all those things. These things are unchangeable. You want to hold on to those? Think it's a good idea? Hold on to those? <laughs> Paul said in another place, don't let these things slip. And the, the phrase stand fast is sprinkled throughout the scripture. So there is a hope set before us, and it's Christ. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters into that within the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek that one that was a type and picture and shadow of Christ who seemingly had no mother, father, no beginning, nothing was mentioned about where did he come from. Speaking of Christ's eternality, the eternal Son of God, as he condescended down and in his incarnation was born of a virgin and uh, took on a um, human nature so that he would have a body for the sacrifice. He was perfect man and perfect deity, two natures, one person, and uh, to perform this, what was explained in the covenant, this oath, this promise was involved so that we may have strong consolation and refuge and have a confident expectation or a hope that is unchangeable. Christ, his person and his work. Let's look at one more before we go back to Titus. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Set apart this one in your mind, is what this is saying. Simply, I'm using plainness of speech here. Set in, in your We have a lot of things in our mind. And a lot of times, a lot of things on our mind. So we have different things on our minds on different days. Today is a day that this local church 
has agreed to, as a body, set the first part of the day, at least, to gather. And we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts or minds to do that. We assemble to worship, publicly worship and do all the things that are part of the function of the church. And this is vital for all the things that we've talked about so far concerning being steadfast, holding on to these things, being exercised in them, growing in them, being edified, built up. So this is part of this task of having our minds renewed, seeing the, the ever more importance of who this one is that we're setting apart in our minds. There was a person recently was talking to me about, uh, this was a phrase, one of those goofy phrases, wasn't the man upstairs, he said big guy, the big guy upstairs. He sent me a text, some guy that I work with. I said, I think it's probably important the next time that you write me concerning this one you're talking about, you use, first of all, you use capital letters. We want to. We can talk about this one that you think you know. And I, I remind people, and, and I know this is hard because when we use electronic devices, especially phones, and when we post on Facebook or text, sometimes across the bar you'll see options. And if you're in a hurry and you spell the word God, it'll have a small g option and it'll have a big g option. And I'm glad there's two because when we talk about a, a false God, we're going to use that small g. But when we're talking about God, we could use other additional names to add to and lend to the definition of who he is by maybe adding the word Almighty, Lord God, you know, various things we can add. But uh, the point is here, let's be reminded because of this right here, sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts, that we reverence who he is by reverencing his name and his deeds, reverencing his word. Notice in the conference at a certain point in time, a couple of times, and some churches have this tradition, and I thought about it here, of when we read the scripture that people stand. And I understand what that's about. That's about reverence for who's saying what's being said. But I mean, I'm, I'm doing all kind of texts here, and I'm not going to have you stand every time I read a text, you know. So there's that decision about, you know, how consistent are you going to be about this as far as standing. But I understand the idea. I understand... The idea. Some some churches don't even have the tradition like that we do of reading scripture, a portion of scripture before the message. Between this group that we have here and another group that we and the different group we had, there was a time period where I went to two other churches and tried to do some things and pretty much got pushed out. Actually I got kicked out of one and kind of quit another, but one of the problems at the Southern Baptist Church that they let me start teaching. They let me start teaching the first week I was there. They didn't know me from Adam. Oh, yeah, come on up. Who cares? And uh, it's just the preacher. He didn't want to work that hard. And so uh, they had a business meeting. I had a suggestion. Instead of, in your bulletin, having everybody's birthdays in the bulletin and, and then bringing people up front and singing happy birthday to them, and they're putting their little coins in the box, making a big deal about birthdays. And so why don't you switch that out and have somebody, one of the guys, read a portion of Scripture. They got madder about that than anything just about that I've ever seen people get mad at. That was a tradition. And I had this idea of, who is this one that we claim to believe that speaks? Is he not more important? 
than a self-centered day that someone was born on that they had nothing to do with anyway. It's a distraction. It has no place in God's church, in my opinion. Um, so sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. When we talk about God, when we write his name, um, when we, we, we don't use his name flippantly, we don't use the Lord's name in vain. We don't say, oh my God. You know how that's the, you hear that on TV and on radio all the time. OMG, it's stupid. Be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason, what, of the hope that lies within you with meekness and fear. Meekness is not weakness, let me remind you. But there is this confident expectation. That, and when it says the hope in you, I think one of the versions says that lies within you. It's, it's housed within you. It's in your mind. It's not about you. The point is that it is outside of you. And that's why it works. Because <laughs> your hope is not in you. I mean, we've already, uh, through your conversion, it's happened. You get rid of your identity. It's not about you. It's about the one that now you identify in, by and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the thing is here, they're asking, be ready. People are going are gonna to ask you, if you're a believer, and if you are one of these ones that sanctified the Lord God in your mind, it's evidently going to come up. Or somebody's going to find out, you know, like when the sheep were scattered right before the crucifixion. And um, somebody came to Peter and said, uh, are you one of his uh, guys? Are you one of his disciples? In a sense, that's going to happen to us. And we're going to say, yeah, let me tell you why. And you present the hope that lies within you concerning your hope. Instead of saying, uh, I, don't, I don't know who you're talking about. You get all nervous. And it takes grace to be able to do this. It says with meekness and fear. You know, you're not going to be cocky about it and uh, prideful about it. We could say that we are proud of our hope. We're proud of Christ. I'm, what's that mean? That means I'm not ashamed of him, right? With meekness and fear. Going back to sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts, it's a reverential fear. Go back to uh, Titus chapter 1, and we'll uh, probably spend the rest, the rest of our time there. I don't think I have any other like tie-in references, but verse 4. To Titus, a true child, uh, King James says, my own son, according to our common faith. Now, what I take this to mean is Titus was converted through the preaching of Paul's gospel. This, other, this language is used in other places. If, say for example, we had a visitor here that I worked with and they believed the gospel through my preaching to them at work or something. And in a sense, I would say, this is my son in the gospel. I think it even talks about a begetting in the scripture in that sense. Now we know that people are children of God and begotten by God by the Spirit of God. But that language is just talking about Paul's association with Titus in the gospel. Titus heard the gospel from Paul. According to our notice, our common faith. Now, the word common is not to be misconstrued here as uh, something that 
like some would talk about common grace, you know, these things of God are not common. That just means the same faith. Titus and Paul had the same faith. Jude uh, 3, I think it is, talks about our common salvation. Same idea. It just means we have the same salvation. Same salvation, same Savior, same Father, same Spirit. Believe the same gospel. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause I left you in Crete. This is Paul writing to Titus. I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed you. So Paul, under his apostolic authority, delegated this task to Titus to appoint elders and whatever else he was talking about that was lacking. I think it's, there's other things too. But elders, ordaining elders, uh, was the chief task he's talking about here. And then he goes into some of the qualifications, reiterates with Titus about these, these are the things you want to look for in these elders that you appoint. If anyone is blameless, husband of one wife, having believing children, not accused of loose behavior or disobedient. For because a overseer must be blameless, said that word twice, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not full of passion, not given to wine, not quarrelsome, not greedy for ill gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, discreet, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word according to the doctrine that he be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict the gainsayers. That's not my purpose today to, to exhaustively talk about the qualifications of some versions say bishop, elder, overseer, some not versions but some people say that means the same as pastor. You know, I, I'm not going to fight over the language, but I read through this and I say, well, it's just, I'm just going to sit down. <laughs> I see these things and this is pretty intimidating, right? If we know human nature and we say that this person has to be a perfect person, then there's going to be no overseers, right? I don't want to spend too much time here, but some of this language, I believe, is emphasizing the things mentioned here as tasks, not just character traits separate from the task. For example, a, a good steward of God. I don't think that's... Some people would read that and say, well, let's look at every aspect of his life and let's see how he's uh, organized and efficient and all that. You know, I mean, that would be great if somebody was that way. But concerning the ministry, you know, is he a good steward concerning the ministry? And, and on and on. There's some other things through there, and I don't want to labor on that. But what I want to start emphasizing here is in verse 9, one of the qualifications that is related to what we're talking about is holding fast the fateful word according to the doctrine. You could probably say the faith. It's talking about or the gospel that he may be able, now remember there's, a, what was it, Second Timothy 2, toward the end there, talked about uh, an elder must be patient, apt to teach, things like this. So here it's talking about getting a hold of the word of God, 
And what did we say earlier? Clearness or plainness of speech. Be able to take that and communicate that in various ways, whether it be teaching the church or whether it be the ministry of apologetics or defense of the faith and going after those that are saying wrong things that may harm the body. So this is the tool that is used. Notice he says doctrine twice according to the doctrine that he may be able by sound doctrine, that is solid, consistent, true. I mean, why else? what other doctrine would you use? That's, the, that's what you're using for the other people that are unsound in the doctrine, that are trying to disrupt the flock of God. Both to exhort and convict the gainsayers. So again, I quote what I read earlier. Since we have such hope, we use plainness of speech. Verse 10. For there are indeed many unruly men, vain talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So he starts out this, uh, this verse, verse 10, with the word for, which means because. So he, he talks about what we need to do or those that are taking this doctrine, this gospel. And, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which all God's people do this. But the elder or the bishop or the uh, overseer, this is a must, a qualification in this area. But there is a sense in which you know, God's people, as they go out and, and mix in the world, or sometimes stand up here and teach, or write, or whatever, they have to use this doctrine, and it says why, that verse. Because there are these people. They're unruly, vain talkers, deceivers, and what he's saying is there is a, there are a high level of these people in the circumcision group. Now, this kind of makes sense to what's currently going on in our world. You know, we can talk about a lot of different errors, and then we can say, seems like especially in this area, there are these type people. And that's what, that's what Paul's doing there. He's isolating certain groups so that he can use plainness of speech in reference to practical application for Titus to know exactly what he's talking about. He goes into some more detail here. He says, whose mouths must be stopped. Well, how do you do that? He already said it in verse 9. By sound doctrine. Taking that doctrine, explaining that doctrine, teaching that doctrine, defending that doctrine, referring to the doctrine. Reminding people of that doctrine. Building people up in that doctrine. So that they may, of course, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how mouths are stopped. Now, wisdom of the world would use all type of other techniques. And I've seen it used in so-called ministries to stop the mouths of people. I don't know. It may be extortion, bribery. You know, who... It's all over the place. There's all kind of crookedness going on. We use sound doctrine and plainness of speech to stop the mouths. So anybody that experiences other ways that people stop mouths, maybe they would use other ways to stop your mouth. And maybe that they would use these other ways in a crooked manner, an unjust manner. 
So how are you going to react to that? I know you are, but what am I? You going to pull the Pee Wee Herman? <laughs> no. You give them back sound doctrine. Do you think anything that's in you coming out of your flesh going back to them is something that's going to be great gain to God? To glorify God, you just tell them what God says. If that doesn't shut them down then, they're going to be in trouble later. God says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. Maturity waits and settles down and, and thinks a little bit. <laughs> you might put it off an hour before you say it, but at least you got an hour in there. You know That's something that you learn, and it's a lesson learned over and over and over again sometimes before it seems to be halfway right. Those whose mouth must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things not right for the sake of ill gain. Okay, so notice this. Why is this important? It's affecting people. Subvert whole houses. That's not good. It should appeal to our compassion that someone's household which has people in it, because we're people, is subverted by these lies. In other words, this is not a game. This involves people's lives. And we should treat other people the way we would want to be treated. If someone's household, if our household is being subverted, you would hope someone would come and to the rescue doctrinally and say, no, 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 no. that person is lying, and here's why. And when you say the here's why, that's you being ready to give a hope for the reason, the reason for the hope that lies within you, your foundation of the gospel of Christ. That cures everything, you know, for I'm determined not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. So it affects people and um, teaching things that th teaching things that are not right. And besides that, look at their motive. A lot of these people are doing it for for ill gain. This could be more than money. It could be other things too. But false teachers are takers. They are not givers. One of them, verse 12, gives an example. I think this is kind of cool. This kind of reminds me of contemporary like conversations that we have about attacks on people using <coughs> false doctrine. And we might say, hey, that one guy on such and such page on social media said this. That's what Paul's doing. He's giving detail about people to Titus to get specific and warn about so he can zero in on some of their issues. One of them, a prophet of their own, it's one of their own people, said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That doesn't sound very positive. It's one of their own people saying this. How can they be <laughs> worth anything? So he's kind of indicating to them. He's got the inside scoop on what one of their own people said. So if one of their own people said this, he might be not telling as much as he maybe even should. It might be worse than what he's saying. You know how people do. They either embellish or they kind of like candy coat. This witness is true. Paul said, it's a fact. What this person said is a fact. Paul checked it out. Paul knew the way these people were anyway. He came some of that batch of people cut from that same cloth, for which cause convict them sharply. That seems pretty strong language, right? So that they may be sound in the faith. And if they're believers, they're off track. 
preach the gospel, give practical, godly counsel from the scriptures. If they are lost, preach the gospel, they'll be, they'll be converted. If they're not converted, they'll be hardened. The word of God doesn't go out void. It serves its purpose that it goes out. Not giving heed to Jewish myths. King James uses the word fables, Jewish fables. And commandments of men that turn from the truth. Notice those two things. Jewish myths or fables and commandments of men. And what do those do? They lift up the truth. They exalt the truth. No, they turn from the truth. Of course, uh, the, this is the group of the circumcision types, right? And there's warnings throughout. Christ, Christ argued with these people. Paul, of course, came out of them and argued against them, went into the synagogues, the temples, and reasoned with them for sometimes months. And um, he plainly says this, these Jewish myths and commandments of men that are they're, they're connected. We saw, we saw the uproar in, in the churches of Galatia and all these churches. That's what's coming in there. That's all that, all that uh, old covenant stuff, all the legalism, all the things that are against the gospel. These are the things that are subverting households, he's saying. They turn from the truth. And when people present them, the ones that are presenting, they're, they're thinking like, this is the truth. Why aren't you doing this stuff? Paul says, no, opposite, turns from the truth. This ties in real good with when we talk about repentance from dead works and self-righteousness. They have these things that they do, and we can see they don't line up with the gospel. Therefore, they are self-righteous. They're dead works. They're fruit unto death. But they think it's the best thing they can do, and that's all they're going around telling people, do this, do this, do this, and this will happen to you in your favor. you got to work to get blessed and do this, that, and the other. Subverting households. Evil men. Their mouths must be stopped. Verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And it goes on. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They don't have a cleansed conscience. They haven't had the gospel of Christ revealed to them so that they would submit themselves to the righteousness of God in Christ. They're going about to establish a righteousness of their own because they're ignorant of the righteousness of God in Christ. It's automatic. It happens every time. Scripture keeps repeating it. We know. We've talked to people. We were there. They have an uncleansed conscience. Their conscience is dirty and defiled, which means they are constantly seeking some way to reconcile themselves to God by what they do. They profess that they know God. Well, yeah, of course. What would Paul say in Romans 10? They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Here, Paul is clear about this. They profess to know God, but in their works, they deny him. But Lord, Lord, didn't I fill in the blank? Christ, the judge, called this legalist guy. 
called his works iniquity. In his works, he denied Christ, even calling on his name, thinking he was like, this ain't going to be a problem. I'm going to please something here. This week, I was listening to a podcast, and there was some silly fights going on between some people, and the one being interviewed on the podcast was responding to some audio that the podcaster was playing to the guy there on video. So this guy's talking about you. Listen to what he's saying. So he plays the audio, and the guy says, you know, you're a hateful guy. You don't conduct yourself right as a as an apologist, as a preacher, a defender of the truth. You're too mean. You're too hateful. And therefore, and he, he said the guy was lost, which, you know, I, I've heard that before. I just like, just let it go. But this guy, his countenance changed. He got a somber look on his face. And uh, I, I kind of thought he was going to cry. I mean, he's a big boy. He did, I mean, he's, he tangles and he has for years. So I'm kind of really surprised the way he reacted. But he said something to defend that he was not lost. Now, I, I hope you all know enough by yourself, by knowing the gospel by yourself and being taught, that if you're going to defend you being a believer, you're not going to plea something you're doing. And we hope that truth stays in your head all the way up until the day of judgment. But what did this guy do? He said, talking about the guy talking against him, he says, he has no idea how many hours I've put in in studying, how many messages I've delivered, and how many blogs I've written. And he went on and on. I thought, <laughs> wow, that's it's talking about plainness of speech. <laughs> he revealed his heart with his mouth. This is what they do. So these that are in false religion, all they do works. They do all kind of works. Now, I'm not saying they're acceptable. I'm saying the very opposite. And that's what Paul's saying here. In their very works, they deny him. And look at the language here. The last, uh, this is the last verse we're going to deal with. Being abominable that's not a good word by the way so those works are an abomination in the sight of God they're detestable I remember David Atkins said we need to get him up here to preach again he said they are a detestation <laughs> abominable and disobedient and reprobate to every good work uh, there is not one positive word in here about what they're doing. <laughs> Talking about piling on, piling on the negative terms and language. about This is the deceitfulness of unrighteousness, the deceivableness of unrighteousness, as uh, I used in my text in the conference out of Second Thessalonians. They don't know they're doing it. And the more you hit them with the gospel, the more they double down with those works as their defense and as their plea. Their only hope is that God would give them life and see what they're doing. And they would drop all that stuff like we were caused to do that. Since we have such hope, use great plainness of speech. I think I quoted it four times. Do we have it? Do we got it? <laughs> Any questions or comments?